on sanctions, it's time to cast a wider net than I think we have seen so far. And I commend the administration and the European Union for what it's done, but it's not enough. We, we need to go after the so-called money bags, individuals connected to Lukashenko who prop him up financially. These include Russian figures who have been instrumental in Lukashenko's staying in power, as well as Belarusians. Cut off the flows from them, and you will water down the thin ice on which Lukashenko stands. The voice you just heard was that of today's guest, testifying before the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission in the U.S. House of Representatives last week. The topic was sanctions against Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko and his Russian enablers in Vladimir Putin's regime. And this powerful testimony raised an issue I've been thinking about, grappling with, and even sometimes writing about recently. And the issue is this. Should the United States and its allies consider broadening its approach to sanctions against Belarus? Should we instead impose sanctions on the Putin-Lukashenko axis of autocrats? Stick around to hear our take. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Miami is somebody I've long wanted to have on the vertical. David Kramer has served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David has also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been president of Freedom House and a senior director at the McCain Institute. And for the last four years, he's been a senior fellow and lecturer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. Welcome to The Vertical, David. It's great to finally have you on, and I'm glad your powerful testimony last week created such a timely pretext. I really appreciate it, Brian. Thanks very much for having me. Always great to see you. So, David, I've long thought that Western policy toward Belarus, including Western sanctions policy, has to thread a very, very difficult needle. On one hand, it needs to punish Lukashenko and his cronies for their abysmal human rights violation and incentivize the regime to change its behavior. But at the same time, Western policy also needs to aim at preserving Belarusian sovereignty and preventing Russia from de facto annexing its smaller but strategically vital Western neighbor and turning it into an extension of Russia's Western military district, which, of course, would be a security nightmare for our allies in Lithuania, Poland, in Latvia, not to mention Ukraine. Prior to August, there were credible arguments to be made that it also made sense to engage Lukashenko. This had the benefit of modifying his behavior. We lifted sanctions after he released political prisoners back in 2015, for example. And it also had the effect of creating some distance between Lukashenko and Putin. Lukashenko had long resisted Russian efforts to build an airbase in Belarus, for example. But since the events of August and the demonstrations that erupted after the flawed election, that ship has apparently sailed and there appears to be no road back. Lukashenko's brutal crackdown and dissent, his tight embrace of Putin, including allowing what appears to be a de facto permanent Russian military presence in Belarus, forecloses on any engagement for the foreseeable future. So then now the West is facing off against what I call the Putin-Lukashenko axis of autocrats. But the good news is this, Belarusian civil society and large portions of Belarusian society in general 
is increasingly looking to the West like never before. Public opinion polling bears this out as does anecdotal evidence. David, I wanted to follow up on your call on the Hill last week to expand Belarus sanctions to include Lukashenko's Russian enablers. But sanctions policy here is also a good launch pad to discuss policy toward Belarus in general. Where are we now and where should we go both on sanctions and in general? Well, Brian, first, thanks very much again for having me. And let me also say that I think the articles you've written on the Atlantic Council's website have really been invaluable on this issue, as well as, of course, many other things uh, that you've done. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you here today. Uh, I think you also frame the challenge we face very well in the setup. The objectives now have changed. I was in in the U.S. government at the State Department involved in sanctions policy against the Lukashenko regime in 2006 until 2008. That was after Lukashenko engaged in violence and abuse against the opposition and imprisoned people. And we imposed, and by we I mean the United States and the European Union, imposed sanctions on him and his regime until he freed the eight political prisoners that were in in jail at that time. And it worked. It took about two years uh, to free everyone. And then we kind of eased up. We were starting a process of engaging. And then after the 2010 elections, we wound up in the same place where violence after the election there, again, a rigged election, and we reimpose sanctions. Then, as you said, we lifted them in 2015. It's kind of like Lucy in the football, where we keep playing the same game and Lukashenko keeps moving the ball on us. Now, as you put it, after August, I think our objectives have changed. Of course, we want people who are in prison unjustly, unfairly to be freed. We want political prisoners released. We also want an end to the abuse. But now I think our objective is the removal of Lukashenko from power. Before it was to get people out of prison. Now it's to have a change in regime. I don't think you'll hear Western officials clearly state that, though they come pretty close because they refuse to recognize Lukashenko as as the legitimate president. They, They will say that he stole the election. And so I think as a result of that, we do face this dilemma of how do you pressure him to force him out while at the same time not pushing him and Belarus further into Russia's fold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to I to follow up and unpack this a little bit, David. I wanted to get and I, I never actually knew your your position on this. I know you were, you were involved in the initial sanctioning of the Belarusian regime followed in 2006 when you were at state. Do you think the engagement that followed was a mistake because I've always grappled with this. I mean, in in my own testimony before the Helsinki Commission in November of 2019, I made this argument that we have to thread this needle. This guy's never gonna be our friend, but we can engage him enough to keep the Russians out. Lukashenko does care about Belarusian sovereignty. So one thing I wanted to follow up on was, was this engagement a mistake? Was this a fool's errand? Or was it worth a try? And now I think you correctly say the underlying assumption behind Western policy right now is to get Lukashenko out. But how risky is that, given that the Russians are known, and this has actually been written about in the Russian media, to have a post-Lukashenko plot in place, to effectively turn Belarus under the guise of so-called constitutional reform, to turn Belarus into a parliamentary republic, to put all the pieces in place for the Kremlin's proxies to control that parliament and effectively de facto annex the country without really annexing it? So two-pronged question. Was engagement a mistake and is removing Lukashenko risky? 
It's a great question. And I, I think for the most part, the way we went about engagement was mistaken. And I think increasingly, as he engaged in abusive behavior, the crackdowns, particularly around election time, I think we failed to learn from those instances. So I think on the one hand, yes, I understand that if Lukashenko was going to stay in power, then we probably had to figure out some way to deal with him and work with him. But I remember vividly, as I know you do too, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's visit a little over a year ago before the pandemic really hit, shaking hands, yucking it up with Lukashenko. I mean, that was a terrible judgment call on his part. He shouldn't have gone to Minsk and he shouldn't be having photos like that taken. So the way one engages is very important as well. You can do it from a distance. I do think that after August, engagement, and you, you've written this, engagement now is off the table with his regime. So I think it's clear to virtually everyone that we have a different approach that we have to take. The issue about Russia, it is a tricky one. I'm not sure I'd agree with you, though, when you say he cares about Belarus's sovereignty. He cares about himself. Most, mm -hmm. most leaders like him, Putin as well, only care about themselves, their ill-gotten gains, how to stay in power. If protecting Belarus sovereignty enabled him to stay in power, he'd be all for it. Mm -hmm. If he had to sacrifice Belarus sovereignty in order to stay in his position, I mm -hmm. think he'd go that, that route as well. So he has been a master of playing the West and Russia off of each other. Mm -hmm. And I think we too often have fallen for his traps. And, and, and I think until August, we had been falling into his traps a few too many times. Yeah, no, I, I come down on both sides of this, depending on you know, what I'm thinking on that particular day. I've <laughs> always viewed... Lukashenko's Belarus, and assuming we had to continue to deal with Lukashenko's Belarus, I used three kind of Cold War analogies to look at possible futures there, right? One was that the positive example was the Cold War era Yugoslav scenario, right? That was the best we could hope for, mm -hmm. right? The Belarus wasn't going to turn into Poland or Estonia, but we could hope that it would be something like Yugoslavia. But that the more realistic scenario was Ceausescu's Romania, effectively, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a Warsaw Pact country that basically went its own way and didn't do everything Moscow wanted to do and engage with the West, engage with China was a pretty much a pain in the butt for the Kremlin. But the thing I worried about the most was Cold War era Czechoslovakia, post-68. <laughs> now, again, that ship is sailing, and, I, and what I'm grappling with right now is, given Russia's escalation dominance in Belarus, right? Let's just face it, they're gonna escalate this. and They see Belarus, they, the only country they see more vital than Belarus is Ukraine. And I put the two in the same basket, what the Kremlin calls its strategic depth, which means pliant regimes on its borders. They're going to go to the mat, and we're not going to go to the mat. So given this escalation dominance, do we just basically have to accept that this is going to be a Russian client and deal with it that way and engage civil society going forward? Or is there anything we can do to stall this? I think what we should do is stand on principle, and in doing so, we will also stand with the people of Belarus. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's clear to virtually everyone, except maybe Lukashenko himself, that he lost the election in August. He lost to Svetlana Tsikhanovska, and, and it, virtually every reliable indication suggests that she won possibly by a wide margin. So if we accept that the people of Belarus last August said enough is enough, we have had enough of this crazy, awful leader who abandoned us during the pandemic, told us to drink vodka, go to a sauna, sit on a tractor, that's the way to deal with it, who has 
left Belarus vulnerable and exposed to growing Russian influence and takeover as a way to stay in power. The people of Belarus, and I think this was an important point, and I think the previous administration was trying to thread this needle. These protests, massive protests, unprecedented in Belarus, were not about whether Belarus should move closer to Russia or move closer to the West. They were about Belarus and about getting rid of Lukashenko in particular. And I think we should respect the people's uh, voice in this. You're right, Russia has more influence and say over the situation. But one of the points that I tried to make with friends in, in, in the previous administration, and, and to this day I still try to make this argument, that Russia risks turning a population that has generally been favorable to, to Russia or neutral at worst from Moscow's perspective into an anti-Russian movement. And so I, I do think that there is some recognition in the Kremlin that if they were to move more overtly militarily into Belarus, uh, they may not find the same kind of resistance they would in Ukraine, where the military in Ukraine has really advanced over the past seven years, but they would find a lot of resistance to a, R a Russian takeover yeah. like that. And, and so they, they run the risk of alienating yet again another country on its borders by being in, in this blatant fashion trying to override the will of the people. And, and this is one of the problems. I, I think we, we want to talk about some other countries in the region too. Putin refuses to accept the will of the people in any of these countries. And he always thinks that behind these protests and revolutionary movements is the United States. Yep. And, and we know why, because he fears that the same thing could happen in Russia. Right, right. And I don't think he even, I mean, I think don't think that's entirely disingenuous by Putin. It's delusional, but it's not disingenuous because I don't think he, my understanding of Putin and from you know studying him most of my adult life, he doesn't believe civil society exists as an independent autonomous force with its own agency. Somebody's got to be pulling the strings. The fact that people could kind of band together and rise up to demand their rights is such an alien concept to him. I couldn't agree more. And I think that really came into the open in 2011, December 2011, when I think he genuinely believed when he said Hillary Clinton gave yep. the signal to Russians yep. to go out in the streets. And I think that did reflect his true feelings. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And on the public opinion, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me here, but I have written about this for the Atlantic Council a little bit about how public opinion in Belarus is changing. And there's limited public opinion polling in Belarus, but the recent polls we have seen suggest that Putin's approval is going way down among mm -hmm. Belarusians, that there are still very positive feelings towards the Russian people. Um, mm -hmm. But, the, but the, the Putin regime that is going down, but what's, what really caught my eye was a poll that looked at what period of Belarusian history should the modern Belarusian state look to for inspiration. And the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire were near the bottom of the list in single digits. It was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. It was the very short-lived Republic of Belarus um, in 1918. I think things like that are actually much more telling than what Putin's particular popularity at any moment might be. A couple other things I wanted to hit on. Um, there right now, we you know Julie Fisher has been named U.S. ambassador to Belarus, but there's a little bit of a kerfuffle about whether or not what you know whether or not the the, the Belarusians are going to accept her credentials. And what Foreign Minister McKay has said is that only if she recognizes Lukashenko as president, which I do not think any U.S. ambassadorial designate would or could or should do. So, how do you see this playing out? How should we play this? 
Um, let me pick up on what you were mentioning earlier before the question, if I can, because again, it just reinforces your point, I think. Support for joining NATO in Ukraine before 2014 was very low. Yep. You know how you drive up support for joining NATO in Ukraine? Invade the country. Right. Um, and, and so, again, Putin has this ability to turn countries that might be even favorably disposed or neutral against mm -hmm. Russia and against him in particular and his rule. Um, and, and again, I think the same would, would happen in Belarus. No one's talking about Belarus and NATO. Frankly, in 2013 and 2014, at least in the beginning of 2014, nobody was talking about Ukraine and NATO either. But Putin has an ability to elevate issues that otherwise were not a problem in the relationship between Russia and its neighbors and, and gives them much more oomph um, af yeah. after his military actions. On Julie, and first, let me salute the work that the very small, limited staff and in Minsk, the U.S. staff in Minsk, have been doing under incredibly adverse conditions. Let me also salute the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, George Kent, for his tireless work yeah. on this. The former Deputy Secretary of State, Steve Began, the two of them uh, went to Vilnius and, and Moscow last September, as you recall, and did their best. And then I also think Julie is the perfect person yeah. as, as the pick for ambassador. She may be spending a lot of time out of, of <laughs> Belarus. Uh, right. I mean, I really commend her for her visits to Vilnius, uh, Warsaw, Stockholm. I mean, she's doing all the right things. And if not giving her a visa or, or giving her a visa rather depends on her recognizing Lukashenko as the legitimate president, she, she may serve out her three year. Hopefully Lukashenko won't be there for three more years, uh, but may serve out her tenure outside of the country. Mm -hmm. And I think the U.S. position is crystal clear. We do not recognize Lukashenko as legitimate president of Belarus, nor should we. Svetlana Skhanovska is the transitional leader of the country until there are new elections. And in my view, the U.S. position should be in new elections. Lukashenko has disqualified himself from participating mm -hmm. uh, because if he participates, he'll steal it again. I mean, it'll yeah. be like Groundhog Day. And, you know, I've seen that movie enough. I don't want to see it again in Belarus. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, Belarusian friends of mine who are obviously pro-democratic, they want a full U.S. embassy on the ground in Belarus because they think the very presence of a U.S. embassy makes it harder for Russia to do any kind of military action there. Would you agree with that? Uh, and also, I would assume that you would think the price of that uh, should not be recognizing an illegitimate president. I, I would anticipate you saying that. Am I correct? Hey, you put your finger exactly on it, which is I think that the U.S. position is the U.S. wants a fully staffed embassy in, in Minsk. Um, I would strongly support that. But as, as you just said, Brian, it's what the cost is. What price do we have to pay in order to get that? And I was in charge, well, the deputy assistant secretary at the time, when Karen Stewart was expelled from Mintz back mm -hmm. in 2008. And uh, we had an internal debate at the time, whether to shut down the embassy and yep. get out and then obviously impose the same on Belarus and in Washington. Uh, and the decision was made to keep a skeletal staff mm -hmm. because we do, we, we do think, and we did then, and I think today, think it's important to fly the U.S. flag on a diplomatic compound in Minsk, and hopefully that flag yeah. will also be accompanied by a U.S. ambassador at some point.
Yeah, no, I remember like it was yesterday, your then boss, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, saying to RFERL, where I was employed at the time, that I did not want to be the Secretary of State that oversaw the U.S. flag coming down over our embassy in Minsk. And that was a, a very powerful statement. Before we move on to the other countries in the region I wanted to talk to, I wanted a couple of other things about Belarus. I wanted to drill down into your testimony on sanctions, which it, it does kind of dovetail with, with my position on this. The broadening sanctions to include Russian entities, and we named a bunch of different different entities, including Russian oligarchs, German Greff, Sparebank, Ural Kali, which is trying to acquire the Belarusian potash giant uh, Gutseriev. Does the legislative basis exist to do that, or do we need any more statutory authority to do that? This is what I was been trying to kind of drill down on lately. I think a new executive order would be helpful to provide the basis for this. I actually do think that there is the basis for doing so now. And, you know, these orders always follow with the phrase uh, threats to national security. Mm -hmm. And a buildup of Russian military forces in Belarus would be a threat to national security. A takeover by Russia of, of Belarus would be a threat to national security. And these things are kind of happening, drip, drip, drip. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that, uh, and I said this in the testimony, I do think a new executive order would provide yeah. some added cover and, and mm-hmm. foundation for these additional steps. But uh, what is happening now, I think you can make the case that it is a threat to national security and that we can move ahead without it. But it would be better to have it under the cover of a new executive order. And by the way, credit to the Congress, particularly Congressman Chris Smith, who's really been a leader on the Belarus Democracy Act initially, and then its reauthorizations and various iterations. Congress has played a really helpful role. And and it is interesting that the sanctions called for in the legislation in the Belarus Democracy Act have actually been supported by several administrations, including Mm -hmm. when I was in the Bush administration, we supported. Usually, as you know, administrations don't like legislation that mandates sanctions. But this was a case where the Congress and the administrations have been on the same page. One other thing I wanted to hit on is this military piece, and you you alluded to it there a bit. I mean, Lukashenko had been resisting this airbase in eastern Belarus. I have every reason to believe his resistance is going to evaporate pretty soon. Um, He's already given some verbal indications that it is. But there's something else going on. This is something Michael Kaufman has, has noticed and pointed out to me, is that this year, Russia and Belarus are conducting a record number of military exercises. No sooner does one end, then another one begins. And what Michael correctly pointed out is that this constant rotation has created effectively a de facto permanent Russian military presence in Belarus. There's also been an agreement to build a joint training facility, which I believe is just another name for a base, um, in western Belarus, in Grodno, near the Polish and near the Lithuanian border, which should really make our allies in Vilnius and Warsaw's hair stand on end. How do you view this emerging military threat? Because at the end of the day, this is one of the things it's all about from the strategic perspective, is this is a qualitative change for the worse the security of our allies in Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. I I think no question. And I think this is an example, it's a very good example of how Lukashenko is sacrificing the sovereignty of his country and allowing this to happen because he feels he has no choice. Uh, The pressure from Russia is undeniable. Remember that that Putin last fall offered him one-tenth of what uh, Putin offered Yanukovych mm-hmm. in Ukraine in 2013 right. in, in terms of financial assistance, $1.5 billion versus $15 billion for Ukraine. So it's not as if 
Putin is digging deep into his pockets financially. But he feels he's got Lukashenko, mm-hmm. how should I put this uh, diplomatically, in a vice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he's squeezing. And I think this also is a little bit part of Putin's, I don't want to say strategy, because I'm not sure he has a strategy toward Ukraine, but at least position toward Ukraine uh, in order to build up the military yep. presence in Belarus to provide the at least appearance, if not reality, of a potential move into Ukraine from Belarus as well. And as this military buildup happens, Russia is effectively buying Belarus right now. This is happening before our eyes. This is another thing, back to the sanctions, something I've been grappling with, and I got the sense that you're grappling with it too, is does sanctioning these big Belarusian state companies and the Russian entities that are connected to them, does this, for example, Slavnaft owns 40 some odd percent of the Mazar oil, uh, oil refinery, does this act as a deterrent for Russia to continue buying Belarus or does it expedite that process? And I can't figure that out. I don't have a clear answer on that. Yeah, no, I, and I've read this in your pieces and it's a tough question. There's no doubt about it. I actually think it is still the right thing to do because it is a way to apply mm-hmm. pressure on Lukashenko. I do think that some Russian enterprises might look twice before buying up or taking over a sanctioned entity. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a need as well to apply some pressure on the workers at these places um, in order to demonstrate to them the position that they're in because of Lukashenko. Now, that means we have to accompany these sanctions with clear messaging that we are not looking to hurt the people of Belarus. On the contrary, these sanctions are designed to pressure the dictator who's been there for now coming uh, 27 years, that we want to do what we can. But I think the messaging also has to make clear, sanctions are not pain-free. They're not risk-free. Sanctions uh, incur some real penalties and, and some real punishment. So we have to recognize that in moving ahead, there are going to be some risks, but I think a tougher sanctions policy is the right approach. And I do think, by the way, that we should be looking not just at the Russian money bags and enablers, but at some of those in the Middle East too, Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. because Lukashenko has very tight ties, as you know, with with the UAE and other countries in the region. And they need to understand, you want to be on the good side of the United States or do they want to be doing business with Lukashenko? It's time time to force some of these uh, individuals and entities and even governments to make some tough decisions. Yeah, and also not not to mention China, where Lukashenko is also trying to to build ties. I would go beyond messaging with civil society, actually. I think, and I argued my last column for the Atlantic Council, that these tough sanctions have to be – we have to have real, tangible outreach to not just Belarusian yeah. civil society, but Belarusian diasporas, yep. which are very large in Poland and in Lithuania. There's Belarusian schools that are promoting the Belarusian language. And I know that your, our European friends are involved in that, our Polish and Lithuanian friends particularly, but I think the United States could stand to get involved in that. These are things Belarusians themselves have suggested to me, extending like, temporary work visas to Belarusians to you know spend a summer in the United States. The, the knock-on effects of that would be enormous. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Yeah. I do think that events of of last summer have brought the diaspora closer together and more effective than they have been in the past. And I'm a huge fan of the Belarus-American community. Um, I I work closely with them when I was in government and when I was at Freedom House and elsewhere. They're a great community. They're kind of small, but they're very effective. I've stood out on New Hampshire Avenue with them protesting against the embassy in Washington. And so I think the more we can work with them, by the way, the more we can reinforce the tremendous 
work that Lithuania has done. I mean, God bless the Lithuanians yeah. for all the support they've been giving. The Poles as well, but Lithuania uh, first, I'd say, and Poland second, have really lent a lot of support, including providing a safe haven uh, for a lot of people who have had to flee the country, including Sikhanovska. So I think yeah. we, we have to help them as well. But absolutely, I agree with you on the messaging. It's it's really critical to this. Yeah, yeah and one of the cool things that's coming out of this is as you're watching, you mentioned Poland, Lithuania, um, and actually the Ukrainians are stepping up on this as well. We're seeing almost this revival of a virtual like Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which yep. was once the largest state in Europe and encompassed what is all of what is today Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, and actually some parts of Southern Russia. So we're seeing this spirit um, kind of being revived. On that note, I guess we'll shift gears in a few moments. We'll continue our discussion and broaden the aperture a bit to look at the state of affairs in three more countries in Moscow's neighborhood that are struggling to escape from the Kremlin's embrace. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David is a senior fellow and a lecturer at Florida International University. Stephen J. Green School for International and Public Affairs. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you like the podcast, and if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it really helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Lukashenko has a track record of disappearing critics, attacking journalists, imprisoning opponents, torturing detainees, and enfeebling his nation. The result is that he has left Belarus more vulnerable to Putin's whims and virtual takeover while isolating his regime from the respected part of the international community. So David, in case you were wondering, yes, that was you again. (laughs) And, and, And although the situations are very different, Belarus isn't the only place where the rulers have taken actions that have left their country more vulnerable to Putin's whims. I believe the last time we saw each other in person was at the McCain Institute's Tbilisi conference in the fall of 2019, right before COVID. Remember when we used to be able to go to conferences and hang out and stuff like that was right before the The pandemic. Yeah, God, I can't wait for them to come back. And I think you felt the same way as I did walking away from that conference. I remember a, a conversation we had in the airport lounge at Tbilisi airport. We all came away really, really concerned about where Georgia was headed. We see backsliding on democracy. We see increased Russian influence. We see the rise of this so-called Patriots of Georgia party, which appears to be a Russian proxy. Your thoughts on that country, which I know you, like me, care very deeply about and have a lot of connections to, what can the United States and its allies do to get Georgia back on the democratic track? So you're absolutely right. I mean, Georgia is a country near and dear to me. I love visiting there. Um, it's just a beautiful country, wonderful people, great food and wine, of course. And yes. it's just a great place to visit. Since 2019, the country has really gone into a downward 
trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, and if you remember, that's when a Russian parliamentarian, Sergei Gavrilov, showed mm -hmm. up, appeared in the Georgian parliament, spoke in Russian from the speaker's chair, and that caused a, a major protest and, and uh, opposition to the government. It was a terrible idea to have invited him there. This was a guy who strongly supported the invasion in 2008 and the recognition of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Fast forward to last year, October, November, with the parliamentary elections that were, were not on a Belarus-Lukashenko scale, but were not great either. No. And, and it wasn't the first time that elections under the Georgian Dream Party have, have not been perfect. The presidential election in 2019 was far from perfect. And I, I think the issue with the parliamentary elections was not whether Georgian Dream, the party in power, got more votes than the others did, they did, but the question is whether they crossed the 40% threshold that is necessary so that you don't have to form a coalition government. And as a result of that, as you know, the opposition decided to boycott the parliament. I'm not sure that was the right decision, frankly, yeah. but I understand why they did. But then Georgia moved from a political stalemate into a political crisis mm -hmm. in February when Benzina Ivanashvili, and I think there's no question he was behind this, basically ordered the arrest of the leading opposition figure, Nika Melia, the head Amelia. of the United National Movement Party. They stormed UNM's headquarters. And, you know, it's hard to resolve a political stalemate when you have just arrested the leader of the main right. opposition party. And to fast forward, the EU got involved, intervened, even paid Melia's bail and got him out of prison last week or this week. I've lost track of time. And so hopefully now the, all the parties can sit down and hammer this out and they can take their seats in parliament because it's not a pretty picture for Georgia to essentially be a one-party parliament. That puts it in the company of North Korea and Cuba and Vietnam and so on. That's not a good company to keep. And so I, I hope that with the EU's intervention, things will come down, although today, Ugalaba, one of the former mayor of Tbilisi, has been announced that he's under investigation again yep. and likely to be put back on trial for the third time. Yep. So this use of the judicial process and the prosecutor general's office to go after political enemies is really going to destroy Georgia. And there's over-personalized politics in Georgia between Ivanashvili and uh, Misha Saakashvili, the former president. And the United States needs to get more engaged. You know, I credit the embassy and Ambassador Kelly Degnan, but we haven't been able to get more involved. Again, I'm sorry to keep picking on, well, I'm not sorry to keep picking on Mike Pompeo, but um, he traveled there in between the rounds of the election last yeah. fall and didn't meet with the opposition in the right. middle of a political, a serious political problem. And that visit was a total wasted opportunity and a mistake in my view. And so I do have more confidence that as the State Department gets more staffed up, and now Victoria Newland there, Wendy Sherman as well, and of course, Secretary Blinken, that we'll be able to focus a little more attention. The United States has more influence in Georgia than Europe does. Right. And we need to exercise that influence in a positive way. Yeah, no, you're right about that, David. I mean, Georgia is probably one of the most pro-American places I've seen. It's more pro-American than America. <laughs> but, yes. um, and and I largely, one of the things I see, I mean, part of this is the result of a very expertly executed Russian operation, Operation Ivanishvili in Georgia Dream. And now, yeah. you know, this is very clear when you look at this with hindsight, what's going on there. You have an unelected oligarch who made all his money in Russia, basically financing the ruling party. And I'm not even sure Ivanishvili's money is even his money. 
there's a lot of reporting out there that it's basically he's, he's caretaker for Gazprom money and, and things like that. There's no hard evidence of that, but I'd like to see it. But part of this is also the result of American disengagement. Russia's always been trying to dominate Georgia. Ivanishvili wasn't the first effort to dominate Georgia. But now it's happening with an absent United States. I mean, the Bush administration was very engaged in Georgia. President Bush is the first and only U.S. president, to, to my knowledge, to ever visit Tbilisi. And the Obama administration was engaged, less engaged than the Bush administration, to be sure. But now, for the last, for, I mean, through the last administration, we were disengaged. Now, President Biden, we know, cares deeply about Georgia as, as much as the two of us do. What do you see going forward? Can you see a more robust U.S. engagement kind of changing the dynamic there? Well, let me just pick up on on sort of where uh, the evolution of U.S. policy is. Some would argue that President Bush overpersonalized the relationship yeah. with Saakashvili and that we then sort of had blinders on when Saakashvili did what he did in late yeah. 2007. There's no truth to these rumors or allegations that the United States gave him a green light in August 2008 of no. uh, dealing with Selfacetia, but still... Quite the uh, opposite, then, my uh, Absolutely. <laughs> we were urging restraint. But then, you know, we didn't do anything to impose penalties of costs on Putin. Uh, and even though he was prime minister, this was still Putin in charge of the invasion of Georgia in 2008. There were, there were no sanctions imposed for that invasion. I think President Obama took the position that Bush overpersonalized the relationship. Mm -hmm. But then Obama went too far yeah. and almost had himself at least very little to do with Georgia. Yeah. The previous administration, the Trump administration, I mean, Vice President Mike Pence did visit Tbilisi in August of 2017, actually had a very good visit, reaffirmed U.S. support for Georgia's membership in NATO. And that was the last real high-level visit until Pompeo's, uh, I think, ill-advised visit in between the parliamentary election rounds. The Biden administration has announced its intention to nominate Karen Donfried, who's the president of the German Marshall Fund, who I think is a fantastic choice. GMF, the German Marshall Fund, has been quite active in Georgia. So Karen will come in with some good knowledge and understanding of Georgia. And I think once she is on board and confirmed as Assistant Secretary for Europe, Eurasia, we will see a more robust engagement. Again, keep in mind, poor George Kent, and I, I think the world of George, I really do. But George has responsibility for Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, and the three caucuses. Yeah, and yeah. they all. Not all have been on fire, but uh, you know they, yeah. they've, been, they've been keeping him pretty busy. There's been varying degrees of rush fires in, in, yes. in each of those two. Before yeah. we move on to Moldova and Ukraine, I just want to very briefly, I, as you know, because you were in the room when I proposed this, but I think we have long thought we should consider it sanctioning Bezina Ivanishvili you know, as an agent of Russia who is undermining democracy in our partner, Georgia. Would you agree with that? And how complicated would that be to do? So uh, here, I actually publicly had said this numerous times, that if Melia were not released from prison, Nick Amelia, the leader of the United National Movement Party, if he were not released, that the United States should sanction Ivanashvili because Melia had been arrested essentially on Ivanashvili's order. And I said uh, the prime minister, Girabashvili, should also be sanctioned. Because remember, the previous prime minister, Gaharia, who was no saint in 2019, he was the minister of interior when some pretty nasty force was right. used against protesters over the whole Gavrilov controversy. But Gaharia became prime minister and Gaharia resigned rather than follow through on Ivanashvili's order to arrest Melia. But Giribashvili came in and within days, yep. Melia was arrested. So I would have held both of them responsible. I think now with Melia's release, 
it's harder to make a case to sanction both. But let me, let me say this. I think Mr. Ivanashvili should pay attention to what the United States did to Mr. Kolomoisky in Ukraine mm-hmm. and to Mr. Plahatniuk in Moldova. And if exactly. he thinks that he has a free ride from here on out, then he might want to read up on what happened to those two. Yeah, no, I was I was thinking along those lines, too. And Viktor Medvedchuk, who we're going to talk about a little bit, yes. we talk about Ukraine, yes. is, was also sanctioned by the United States. Let's, let's move yes. on to Moldova, because you, you also worked on Moldova and Ukraine in the Bush administration. Moldova's pro-Western president, uh, Maya Sandu, this week dissolved parliament, which is dominated, of course, by pro-Russian elements. So you have a pro-Western president and a pro-Russian parliament. And Maya Sandu called early elections for July. Moldova's long been divided, almost evenly between pro-Russian and pro-Western forces. I mean, every parliamentary election is almost split down the middle and it's a matter of which side gets a, you know, a bare majority. With Sandu's election, I thought the tide seemed to be turning. I mean, Maya is not just a pro-Western figure, but she is a very, very, very well-known pro-Western figure. And the fact that she could get elected in this country with a pretty large margin, actually, it wasn't even close. The tide seemed to be turning. Now, where do you see this going? How do you see the state of affairs in Moldova at the moment? You're absolutely right, Brian. It it is a very divided country. It has been for years, uh, including back when I was in the State Department traveling there regularly. I had the I guess you could say misfortune of being the U.S. representative for the ill-fated five plus two talks designed to try to resolve the Transnistria problem. But I've seen a poll by the International Republican Institute that came out, I think it was last month, that does provide some reason for optimism, including perhaps that might be reflected in the upcoming elections in July. And and the, the survey showed that more Moldovans think the country is moving in the right direction. They tend to be more upbeat about the presidency and the country's future. And there was, according to the poll, a 13% increase since August 2020 of people thinking the country is heading in the right direction. Now, it's still only 28%, so I don't want to get carried away with it. But before uh, Maya Sandu came to the presidency, 72% thought it was moving in the wrong direction. Mm. That's now down to 54%. Uh So sorry to throw out these these numbers, but, but it's reflective of, I think, a more upbeat mood, which may suggest and bode well for her party and her forces come the elections in July. The country is, as you rightly pointed out, badly split. But I think getting rid of Mr. Dodon as as the president was a good thing. You know, it's a very poor country, as you know, that often is forgotten. So I do think that there's an opportunity here with her in the presidency and the elections. And we have to be careful in the West, in the United States, in Europe. We don't pick favorites. We don't pick parties that we want to win. We often can bet on the wrong horse. We should focus on the process, on the principle of elections, and ensure that these elections are free of any controversy. We should do that with a little extra humility these days, given our own problems on elections. Uh, at least efforts here by some to undermine our uh, the credibility of our elections. The actual election process was fine. And to support Moldova as it tries now to move in a more reform-minded direction, a more Euro-Atlantic direction, and support that on the principles. Yeah, I know. And I think as you pointed out earlier, David, the sanctions against Plahatniuk were actually vital here because he was playing everybody against Absolutely. everybody. He was, I don't know how many <laughs> governments he was he was working for simultaneously, but getting him out of the picture was certainly a good move. Finally, as we bump up towards the end, we got to discuss Ukraine, because how could we not? My take on Russia's recent saber rattling there is that Putin is unhappy with where the conflict in Donbass is going. 
He never really wanted to annex it, in my view. He wanted to force it back into Ukraine as a Trojan horse. He wanted to turn Ukraine into Bosnia-Herzegovina, with the occupied Russian parts of the Donbass playing the role of destabilizer. And like Poroshenko before him, President Zelensky has successfully resisted this, and I would even say skillfully resisted this. Both Ukrainian presidents, the current one and the former one, preferred to keep the conflict frozen, much to Moscow's consternation. So Putin tried to change the dynamic with some saber rattling. It appears to have backfired for now, but it's not going to be the last attempt, let's face it. Then there's the water crisis in Crimea and the perennial fears that Russia may try to seize Kherson Oblast, which is just north of the occupied and annexed Crimean Peninsula, to resolve that bit. And then, um, oh, by the way, the pro-Kremlin tycoon and politician Viktor Medvedchuk is being charged with treason. Medvedchuk isn't just some pro-Kremlin tycoon and politician. He's personally very, very, very close to Vladimir Putin. And the SBU searched his home this past week, and he's being charged with treason, which is a potentially explosive situation. I think it's the right move by the Ukrainians because it's basically going after one of the main vectors of Russian malign influence in Ukraine. But Putin's not going to take this sitting down. So I'm, I'm waiting for the next shoe to drop. How do you see this playing out going forward, given all these things that we just I just laid out? Sure. You know, look, first on the Medvedchuk, you know, about time, in my view. Yeah. Ukraine is has been a, a country of frustration when it comes to justice and accountability. Think about the poisoning of Yushchenko in 2004. There yeah. really has been no justice for that. And if I yeah. had been poisoned and then became president, I would urge my uh, <laughs> prosecutor general um, to do something about that. The killings in, in 2014, there's been virtually yeah. no accountability for that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, Medvedchuk and others have played an incredibly baneful role in Ukrainian politics and, and in opening up opportunities for Moscow. And uh, it isn't just Medvedchuk. It, it's, you know, Firtash, where there's a case against him from the United States, mm-hmm. uh, but not from Ukraine. So I think we need to see a, a stronger push in this regard, and it's critical to cleaning up Ukraine's economy. There is too much control and influence exercised by these oligarchs who do not have the country's best interests at heart. In terms of Putin and the uh, Donbass and elsewhere, you know, my, my view has been that in 2014, Putin went into Crimea and illegally annexed it because he panicked. He he was worried that this revolution in Ukraine, which uh, led Yanukovych to flee, he wasn't ousted, he fled, had the the potential to really catch on and possibly even spread to Moscow. And so I think out of panic, he moved into Crimea. And then he was, for him at least, pleasantly surprised at how easy that Mm -hmm. was. And then to borrow a Stalinist phrase, got dizzy with success and decided to move into the Donbass. And there he ran into a buzzsaw. Um, And the Ukrainians, unlike Crimea, decided to fight and and Mm -hmm. push back. So I think what what we're seeing here is a reflection of how Putin's interests do not gel with Russia's national interests. Russian national interests, of course, should be to see a successful, thriving Ukraine on its borders with whom it can trade and and engage in all sorts of activities in a legal way. And if, if Ukraine can open the door further to Europe, then Russia should welcome that. Putin doesn't want to see Ukraine succeed, doesn't want to see it integrate into the Euro-Atlantic community. He wants instead to destabilize Ukraine. And and how is that in Russia's national interest? And what he has done in the process, as we talked about before in referencing Belarus, it has turned a lot of the Ukrainian population against 
Russia and against yep. him. And that's why support for NATO, not mammoth, but it has gone that's over so much 50%. Art. Absolutely. And, and and so Putin has this knack for turning his neighbors against Russia. And that's because of the means he uses and the, the reasons he does so. And the reasons he does so is he can't have thriving, successful alternative systems of government in his neighbors because he worries that Russians will see that and say, hey, they could do it. Why can't we? I, I think, frankly, he might exaggerate the risk yes, of contagion. But this is this is what happens when you've been in power too long and become incredibly paranoid. Given this situation and given that it is highly unlikely that Ukraine is going to get into NATO, regardless of what the majority of the Ukrainian population thinks, because let's face it, there are members. You were at Bucharest in, uh, in 2008 at the NATO summit, as was I. Uh, we were there in different capacities. <laughs> but um, but uh, we saw we all we both saw what happened there. Um, I'm skeptical about bringing the allies along on this. What can we do to enhance Ukraine's security, given the real, very real threat of kinetic military activity that it faces? So uh, just to be clear, I actually was still in D.C. I didn't oh, go to because okay. I changed into the uh, Democracy, Human Rights and Labor Bureau by that point. But um, in any event, I do think it is critically important for the United States and NATO allies to reiterate that NATO's door remains open. I do think... Uh, and, I, and I support Ukraine's eventual membership in NATO. After all, we did, as you rightly referenced Bucharest in 2008, we did say Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. And unless those are hollow statements we make, we have to follow through on it. But I think it's important to reiterate that. I think the United States could on its own extend a major non-NATO ally status to Ukraine. That doesn't require alliance support. But uh, you know, for those who think the United States on its own can force Ukrainian membership into NATO should remember what happened in 2008. Right. George Bush personally, the president of the United States personally, was strongly supportive of offering a membership action plan to Ukraine and Georgia in 2008. And he didn't get it because Angela Merkel in Germany uh, and, and the French president Sarkozy were, were opposed. Yeah. And, and so the United States needs to get consensus. So I do worry a little bit about the emphasis from President Zelensky on NATO membership now, because what you don't want is a negative answer. Right. Uh, what you want to do is to keep make sure the door stays open so that possibility stays out there. And the, and the alliance has an obligation to show some forward movement. Yeah. But I, I think you got to be a little careful if you're a, a political leader in, in Kiev these days about pushing too strongly and risking getting a negative answer. David, this has been great. I could go on with you about this stuff for hours, but unfortunately, yeah, we, have, we have to wrap up. This has been a, a fascinating discussion, so that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from sunny Miami, Florida has been David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David is a senior fellow and lecturer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. David, thanks a lot for an enlightening and lively discussion. 
Thanks very much, Brian. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order through our discussion. And a very special welcome to Mariah Jalad, the newest member of the Power Vertical team who handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review, especially if you like us, because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.